A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. The final international break of the season is a good time to draw a breath and take stock. Who've been the winners and the losers from the season so far? Manchester City, of course, are a juggernaut. The quadruple is a realistic target whatever Pep Guardiola says. But what are the rest? Jordan, who's impressed you most? Okay, so I love this question because it, it, it gives me a chance to have some fun with it. I'll try and rattle through a few that I've got down here and not take up too much time. Of the winners, I've got, in terms of teams, I've got Crystal Palace and Leeds. And I'll tell you why I've got those two teams. I've got Crystal Palace because I think that Crystal Palace side, Bar Zaha, and maybe the young boy Eze there, that's a championship squad. That's a really, really bang average squad, I think. And for them to be currently 12th in the Premier League, I think is a huge, huge achievement for them. I've, I've not been often bowled over by the brand of football they play, but I, I, I can't believe that they are 12th, that, that that team should not be 12th in the Premier League, and they are. And that's a testament, I think, to the work that Roy Hodgson has done and the players that he's got there have bought into the management style. So I think that their achievement of being mid-table, considering what they've got there, is an achievement and, and they're, they're winners for me. Leeds, now I started the season bashing Leeds, hardcore. <laughs> I was so bored of the Leeds loving that everybody was, oh, Leeds are back. Isn't it great to have Leeds back in the Premier League? Everybody's second favourite team. No, they're not. No, they're not. I can't stand Leeds, but fair's fair. They're, they're 11th. And for them to be back in the Premier League and mid-table, I think it's an achievement. Uh, one thing about Leeds, though, is I don't know where it's going. And what I mean by that is the brand of football they play is, is exciting for the neutral. The fans don't seem to have a problem with it as well. Bielsa's great. But I don't feel that kind of random football that's entertaining will bring any trophies long-term. So that'll be my long-term worry for Leeds. But, you know, they've been a good fun, good team to watch. Them getting beat 6-1 at Man United, I don't care. I'm not a Leeds fan, so I like watching that. Hey, a couple others. I've got players. Concert Villa, I think he could be picked up by a club in, in the summer. I really think he's a good centre-back, um, Aston Villa, and he's gone under the radar a little bit. Luke Shaw, his return to form this season, I think, is, is, he's, I think he's a winner. He's an example of, if you give a player confidence, which I think he lost under Jose. You see a player that we saw at Southampton and Basuma at Brighton. Again, I think he could get picked up by a big club in the summer. I hope my team managers, Brendan Rodgers, Espirito Santo and Dean Smith. Three managers that I think have done well this year. Just briefly, Brendan Rodgers, I think is an example of a guy that's good coaching. I think he's a very good manager of players and, 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 and men developing certain people. Espirito Santo, I've picked him because Wolves are 13th. But that for me is a bad season. And if you're a Wolves fan and 13th is a bad season, that for me in a really weird way, I think is a good sign. And Dean Smith, again, I, I was very hard on him last season. They should have gone down. But this year they've come back. Example, like Leicester, good recruitment, good management. They're my, they're my uh, winners for the season. 
Oh, well, that's just about it then. We might as well pack up now, <laughs> shall we? Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Amory, as uh, Jordan zoomed in from left field, um, what are your thoughts? Winners for me, surprise winners for me. I'm going to go with West Ham this season. They've just absolutely blown me away. Words that I, I'd never thought I'd say. And, you know, Mike, we've talked about this before. I, I've actually really enjoyed watching West Ham this season, they're one of the teams that I've, <laughs> I have to watch them, of course, because it's part of my job, but it's not a team that I particularly look forward to over the last couple of seasons. But this season, my goodness, and it's like the jigsaw has finally fallen into place for them. I know there's a big debate about whether fans being there is a big factor in that, but you can actually enjoy watching them playing. You feel the energy, the bars, the swagger as well, especially since Jesse Lingard is, is, is joined the team. And I think... You know, I've had a hit and miss thing with uh, David Moyes. Sometimes I like him, sometimes I don't, but I give him full 100% quality for this. And for a change, the board have not got involved. For for a change, the board have just let West Ham do their thing, let the players do their thing. And you're seeing that, the results now in the table. So that's a, a massive winner for me. Losers-wise, I'm going to go with Wolves. I agree totally with what Jordan said, and I don't think I can add much more to what he said, actually. You know, he made that point about being 13th. When they finished seventh last season, the quarterfinals of the uh, Europa League, it's been a massive, massive drop for them. And what has shown me about them is their lack of depth. The fringe players having to come into the first-team squad have not delivered. Considering the... Financial backing, shall we say, that's within that club. I think it's actually highlighted a massive gulf between them and the cities and Liverpools and Manchester United of this world. Yeah, well, I suppose you know the Wolves situation is complicated immeasurably by you know almost like socio-political issues, you know, geopolitical issues around China, Chinese ownership, and also you have a club, whether we like it or not, is is beholden to one particular Asian, it seems. So. There is an issue there, I think, and yeah, you know, I would probably concur with with both of you on that one. I suppose, Jordan, you know, let's start at the top or, or resume at the top. You know, I talked about Manchester City being a juggernaut. You know, I thought the the FA Cup tie was 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 fairly typical. Okay, the the two goals came in the last seven or eight minutes, but there was seventy five percent possession against Everton. They've got this, I know this uh, this slogan has been borrowed by a certain uh, shoe manufacturer, but they've got a just-do-it mentality, haven't they? They're winning whatever happens in whatever means they want. Yeah, they're, they're, they're in that groove now where they're just getting the job done. And I think that, I, I just still can't get over their defensive record. I, I just think it's just it's it's just mind-blowing what they're doing with the clean sheets and, and how the influence of... Ruben Diaz, what he's had on that team. I think we're seeing a better John Stones because of because of his inclusion. I think I think he just brings a calmness. I was trying to work out for a while what it is that he's particularly good at. He's not particularly great at any one thing. He just seems to be very good at leading and a calming influence. And I don't want to kind of compare him to Vincent Company, but I'm going to compare him to Vincent <laughs> Company and say that he just seems to be that guy that people seem to trust, you know, in 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 defence. Then I think the keeper trusts him. I think the fullbacks trust him, and I think that has enabled them to just really believe that if we just do our jobs, the guys up front are going to do theirs, and we're going to win more games than we lose. There's talk, obviously, of the quadruple coming off. I still think. We're a couple of weeks early before we should really be thinking about that. I think it's a possibility, but I think we're still, I'm still a couple of weeks before I start re really going with that talk. But the treble, I think, is, is definitely something we could be considering for sure. That should be, I think, for them now, the minimum. If they can get three trophies this season, I think anything less than three, I think they'll be disappointed with that. And they're in the groove. And I think that it's scary now for next season because if they can replace Aguero with, a, with another centre forward of, of his ilk, I, I think we could be looking at the next two or three years. Good night for the rest of the Premier League, for sure, and maybe even Europe. Mm, yeah, I think uh, if they get Haaland, we might as well all go home, I suspect. But uh, what about? I'm I'm really interested, uh, you know, from a broader perspective, Amory, on the whole idea of of a winning culture. You know, I, I I like studying coaches and in other sports as well, just to get an idea of what the common traits of of winners or winning programs are. You know, you follow the women's game as well. You've got a situation where, you know, I would imagine that the potential WSL champions, Chelsea, under Emma Hayes, who's been there for six years, you've got 
the stability of Manchester City. You both both clubs have got a strategic commitment to those particular teams. What traits do you think Chelsea women and the Manchester City men have? What are the common traits of champions? Both uh, have teams that want quality all the time. They don't get a day off from quality. It's delivering the performance every time. When I've interviewed Emma Hayes post-match, when we were allowed to be back in stadiums, of course, the one thing she would always talk about, the result didn't necessarily go Chelsea's way. She always talks about the performance. She always wants 110% performance from the pitch. And you see that with Chelsea women. You see that with Manchester City. Sometimes it gets a bit ugly, but they still get the result over the line and she's somebody very much who drives into her plays about being clinical, about being ruthless, but enjoying the game as well. When, you know, Sam Kerr scores a goal, she does a backflip because she's so delighted and yet she's so clinical and ruthless with her, her finishing. The fact that constantly creating, constantly putting other teams under pressure. From the minute the first whistle goes, Chelsea women are on you like a rash and they will suffocate you and they don't just want to get two goals or three goals. They'll keep going until it's six, seven, eight, nine and right into that to the final whistle. The one thing also that Chelsea women have in abundance and Manchester City women is heading that way as well is strength and depth in their squads and you have that in the Man City men's team as well. Chelsea women have two players for every single position and then they've got the bench. And you see that golf now definitely in, in the women's game. City, women are following close behind. Manchester United, women getting there. Arsenal though, mm, question mark. And then you've got everybody else. That's the difference now. If you go back five years, you wouldn't have had this discussion, to be honest, Mike. There wouldn't have been this discussion about having an A team, a B team and a strong bench because everybody was probably on an equal foot. Because there's more investment now, there's more eyes on the game, you're now seeing the rewards of that. And Chelsea are running away with it. Of course, they had their 33-game unbeaten run, which was great. Brighton were the surprise team to bring that to an end back in February, but it just shows you how strong Chelsea are. Remember, they went out of the Women's Champions League at the hands of the final Women's Leon back in 2019 at the semi-finals. So I think they're on for a good run this season. They will be unstoppable. Yeah, I suppose if you look at the football in general at elite level, Jordan, and let's look, let's put it into a Premier League perspective as well. Is the gap between the haves and they're not quite have-nots, but the have-lesses or the have-fewers or whatever we want to call it, is that gap getting wider? I'm not sure it is, Mike, because I'm looking at the table now and City, who, OK, let's say they're the richest club in the in the country and they're running away with the title. They're on 71 points. You know, the, down to the top 10, there's a, what, 30-point gap? That, for me, feels about right. I, I don't think there's this, you know, huge gap. OK, City are running away with it, granted, but I think this year is a bit of an, an anomaly to, in, in, in some senses. I, I don't. I think a lot of people say that, but I don't agree with that. There's this massive gap between the likes of City and United and the Chelseas that have lots and everybody else. The Premier League gives these gives these sides a lot of money, a lot of money. So if you are falling well behind the the top four, the top six, I, I think that says more about how you run your club than it does about the resources you have to, to, to be able to compete. If you look at my club, Arsenal, for example, Arsenal are not a poor club. They're ninth. They're not ninth because they've got significantly less money than Man United or Manchester City. They're ninth because of a combination of poor management on the field and off the field. I think a lot of the clubs in the Premier League, even below below the top the, the top ten, you look at the likes of you know Wolverhampton Wanderers, Southampton, Newcastle. These guys have the funds to be able to compete in and around the top ten. They're not because of for, for, for different reasons. So I don't think it's a case of because Manchester City are owned by a state, that that gives them uh, that much more of an advantage than than the teams around mid-table. I, I, I don't see it that way, personally, no. Mm. If we're talking about winners in the context of the Premier League season, Anne-Marie, what about Chelsea, but Chelsea under Tuchel? It's funny, really, because... I remember watching that first post-match interview that Tuchel gave after he'd taken over Frank Lampard and you could just see the difference, you, the way he spoke, the, the way he came across, very charismatic, very forensic in his analysis of that first game in charge and he was just on another level and, you know, Chelsea took him on to solve 
a problem. That's what he he does. And and the players have reacted to him really well to solving the problems on the on the pitch, and they're working extremely hard. And you can just see it with Tuchel. It's just on another level with him, on the level of the Klops and the Guardiolas of this world. And I think for me. As I said before, I think it was absolutely the right decision. It wasn't working for Frank. They needed a, a quick reaction and they've got that now. You know, they're back in where they need to be with Chelsea. And, and as you can see now, in terms of what they're doing on the pitch, the attacks are now just coming from the, on the wing, which is throwing, I think, a lot of teams off, particularly from Reese James on the right, which means the opposition is having to adopt a bit more of a, of a higher line and figure that out now. You know, I just, I'm in awe of... Thomas Tuchel, I know it sounds really poor, but I am because I just think he just brings something so extra to the Premier League for me. Just, you know, you have like like A-star kind of coaches. He's that for me, the quality. Him, Ancelotti, Guardiola, Klopp. I mean, we are so spoiled within the Premier League about the quality of coaches that we have. Mm. It's interesting also, Jordan, you know, Chelsea is to use their owner's word, a pragmatic club. I found the interview with Roman Abramovich in Forbes at the weekend really intriguing. I think that was his first major interview for about 15 years. Under him, Chelsea have won 36 trophies at men's, women's and youth level. I found it interesting him stressing the importance of the club as a community and addressing intolerance i'm going to talk about that later but you know chelsea now has become a club that values its former players now we all understand in the job that we do the role of let's say strategic pr but i found that interview really quite revealing because a much more nuanced picture emerged didn't it it did. And I, I, when these sort of things come out, when, when things happen that aren't normal, I always question the timing and why. And I, I don't have an answer, but I, I find it, I, I, my first question was, why after not doing an interview for so long, as you say, is he doing one now in, in, a, in a finance magazine? Was there a kind of a, a subtle financial message he wants to get out there to the media, to the fans about what they can and can't do financially this summer? That, that was kind of one of my takeaways from 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 the interview but I I think with Roman Abramovich it's all about perception I think he loves that football club I think he loves Chelsea Chelsea football club wants to do well for for them and I think he's prepared to spend and spend and spend until he gets the project that he wants the project that I think he wants is not only success but success in a particular type of way we remember about I think about 10 years ago there was rumored quotes of him saying that he wants to basically have the Barcelona of England he wants to play like Barcelona he wants to have the stars like Barcelona that never really materialized it had the success of Barcelona without the style so I think he's still seeking and still striving to have not only the most successful football club in the country but the one that has a little bit of panache and a bit of style on top of it as well and I think what came from that interview as well is that he's still a, an owner that's hungry for not only success but success in a particular type of way and I think going back to Anne-Marie's point about Thomas Tuchel I agree we are really blessed with having some of the world's best managers in in this league and I think Roman bringing in someone like him to this league shows that not only is he ruthless in the way he treats a legend in Frank Lampard but he's also really really hungry at the same time to still be the best and I think he I think he'll be a little bit irked there was something he said in an interview that I think he'll be a bit he'll be a bit irked that Manchester City now are the big boys in town and I think he'll be driven by wanting to grab back the mantle as the Premier team in the Premier League. Because mm. it is interesting isn't it Emery that the owners of any particular club set the tone of that club if we look at Manchester United, you know, I would say that they need to win the Europa League to qualify as winners for this season. They've got stability of sorts. They're making a profit, even in a pandemic, of about £39 million. But in so doing, with that ownership structure and that ownership culture, are they losing something greater? It's interesting, isn't it, where you get an owner who comes out who doesn't really talk to the media a lot and actually is quite insightful with his words and his thoughts and where he wants the team to go. And yet with the Glazers, it's pretty much radio silence. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've, I've seen much of them talking about what direction they want to take the club in. You just hear from Edward Woodward quite a lot and, that, and that's about it. Look, at the end of the day, 
all clubs want to do well, but at least I understand what drives Chelsea forward through the owners. I don't understand what drives Manchester United forward. And if I hear again that, oh, it's just Manchester United, again, I'm going to go mad because there are other clubs that have overtaken that now and they are being more forward thinking, more um, powerful with their words in terms of their leadership. I don't get that sense with the Glazers. I don't get that sense from Edward Woodward. It's, you know, it comes through from the manager and I want to hear it from the club as a whole. I want to hear what the club's plan is. Is it that they want to win the Premier League again? Great. Is it that they want to win the Europa League and get back into the Champions League again? And we forget they did qualify last season anyway and then it all went horribly wrong. I just think, I think they... Picking up on Jordan's point, I think other teams have overtaken them in that respect. The Manchester Cities of this world and Chelsea wanting to get that place back. I want to see United doing that same thing, wanting to get that place back because they'll get overtaken otherwise. Yeah, because it seems to me, Jordan, that the last week has summed up Manchester United's season. You know, hmm. excellent in Milan. Then, you know, they basically. They didn't quite sell the shirts against Leicester, but they were really poor, I felt, uh, in the FA Cup. That was a trophy they could quite easily have won. There was some fairly incoherent selection there. You know, Why, with an international break coming, do you actually rest your two most effective players, Shaw and, and Fernandez, before that break? just didn't make any sense to me. And and the week started actually with them securing for me top four with a win against West Ham. So yeah. it started really well for them. And and yeah, I, I, I was I was speaking to Anne Marie last week about Man United, and we agreed that United need to win a trophy this year. Top four and Champions League football is is very very important for them. Man United need to be in the Champions League. So I understand that the, the the drive and the focus on on securing back to back Champions League finishes. But if you're a team like Man United, for me, you don't get to pick and choose between it's either top four or it's trophies. You've got to do both. You've got to do both now. We're into now year three, I believe, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And there's no trophies still coming in. I, I, I don't think that's good. I think them losing to Leicester was a really, really, really big defeat. Because I, I think, as you say, Bar City, they would have probably been the favourites for, for this competition. So I, I think there's now extra pressure on them to go deep into the Europa League. And the performance, as you say, against Leicester, it, it, it was... It was more weird than poor. I didn't quite get what they were trying to do. They, they, it seemed very easy for Leicester to, Leicester to play. I didn't understand what they were trying to do. I don't mind if a team loses if I can at least see what they're trying to do. I couldn't, I couldn't see what they were trying to do yesterday. So, I, I think there's more pressure now on them in the Europa League. They will, they will come through that. But I say that, but you know, maybe they won't. <laughs> it's Man United are that random in the moment. Maybe they won't. But I think they're now with a top four spot secured. And they're now out of the FA Cup. They have to now go 100 for the Europa League. So I think another season under Solskjaer with no trophy, the top four thing only kind of covers the lack of silverware for so long before the fans will start asking, where, where, where are the trophies, mate? Mike, can I add something very quickly? I think it was a massive yeah. opportunity missed by Manchester United going out of the FA Cup yesterday because they would have met Southampton and they would have crossed Southampton. Yeah. That's huge for me and that's huge and knowing you're playing a team that is behind you in the Premier League in third place and yet you didn't rock up and show what you could deliver it was a massive opportunity missed so let's look at Leicester if we could Amory then here's a club I think they are winners no no matter what happens for the rest of the season they've been really they're a progressive club coaching recruitment they give their young players opportunity and they've overcome so many injuries when you think about it Brendan Rodgers deserves all the credit going, doesn't he? 100%. 100%. Haven't moaned about injuries, haven't moaned about a congested schedule, haven't moaned about how coronavirus has been impacting the team at all, have just got on with it quietly, stealthily. And, you know, you don't need to worry where the goals are going to come from from Leicester. I think, you know, there's so much focus on on Jamie Vardy and rightly so because he is a prolific goal scorer. But the fact that you've got, and I know some of these players are injured, but, you know, Harvey Barnes, James Madison, Tielemans yesterday, Ian Nacho on the payroll. You know, not forgetting Wilfred Ndidi as well and his role, what he does bringing into that team, playing alongside Yuri Tielemans. My goodness, Leicester have just been, uh, they've blown me away. 
they've blown me away as long, alongside West Ham, to be honest. And uh, yeah, Brendan Rodgers does deserve a lot of the plaudits. And, you know, leaving Celtic was a big decision. I can imagine it was a big decision to come back into the Premier League because he wants to show that he can deliver after what happened at Liverpool and having that on his shoulders, he'd want to demonstrate that he is a good coach and he can win things. And, you know, for them, I think it was a too far, the big lesson, leaving Europe far too early, too early. Again, they would want to repeat. They don't want to repeat the lesson of dropping out of the top four right at the last moment. They want to avoid that in all costs. But congratulations to them and Brendan Rodgers, you know, to get into a semi-final of the FA Cup, which I think is the first time in over 30 years or something mm, like mm. that. Again, a yeah, club... 1982. Thank you. 1982. A club who've just gone about their business quietly, recruitment quietly, delivering on the pitch. Brilliant. Can I just quickly add to that? Sorry, just very briefly. I, I, I agree with what Amory said there. I think if Leicester are smart, they'll be putting together a plan for the next five to 10 years to try and make themselves an established, at worst, top six club, maybe top four clubs. Teams like Arsenal and Spurs are, are showing me at the moment they're not serious clubs. Leicester have a chance here to really assert themselves as a top six minimum football team for the next five years if they continue with their trajectory of employing good managers and, and good recruitment. I think there's a, there's a gap there after the big four for them to really make themselves the next team after the two Manchester clubs, Chelsea and Liverpool. Yeah, I suppose, Jordan, that the key to all that is keeping their best players. I know that's a statement of the obvious, but, you know, we all know how the financial structures in Premier League football work. OK, they've got very good backing. And when you look around, you know, let's let's take Aston Villa, one of the clubs that you praised earlier on. If they sell Jack Grealish, that tells me that they won't maintain the progress that they've made. Equally, if Leicester do what they've done consistently and pick up 60, 70, 80 million pounds for another player, probably a Madison or someone like that, they won't make that leap that you think they can. Well, I think I think I think Leicester are the example that Aston Villa needs to look to in that if they are forced to sell Jack Grealish as an example and they can get 80 million in for him. We've seen with the 80 million that Leicester got for Harry Maguire. If you have a good recruitment team, you accept that, okay, we're going to lose our star guy. There's teams in, on the continent that do it. Porto and Ajax and Udinese get big fees, Benfica, big fees for players. And they reinvest it in building three or four, for the next three or four years with three or four new young players. We've seen that you can bring in the players that are going to sustain you for the next five years. Aston Villa may lose Jack Grealish this summer or next, but if they're very intelligent about how they use that 60, 70, 80 million pounds, that could be the difference between them having two great years under Grealish and then falling off and actually the next five to 10 years in spending that money wisely. I think Leicester are the perfect example of if you are going to sell your prize asset, if you are intelligent, if you have the right recruitment in place and you have a plan, okay, in the, in the short term, losing your star player is, is, is painful. But I think if you deploy that money wisely, you can actually set yourself up for the next five years. Jack Grealish is not going to be around forever, but that £80 million they could get for him could be the difference between the next five, 10 years, Villa, for example, being a top eight team for the foreseeable future. So whilst losing your star guy isn't ideal, I think it's about how you then use that money. Spurs are the opposite example, the Gareth Bell money. Do you know what I mean? Where you get the big fee in and you don't use that money wisely to set you up. So I, I, I think if those sorts of teams have to accept that if they're not going to win the Premier League, how can we be in the next rung down? How can we be a top six side? And you might have to sacrifice losing your best player if you have the intelligent people behind the scenes spending that money wisely for the long-term sustainability of your club's success. Let's Let's... Broaden that question, if we could, Anne-Marie, to the club that you praised right at the start, West Ham. David Moyes has really brought a sense of order and organisation there. What strikes me, though, is how the dressing room has, you know, it's assimilated Jesse Lingard pretty easily and the pivotal influence within that dressing room of Declan Rice. Can they, because people will come for Declan Rice, won't they? People will come in the summer. Chelsea have always been linked with them, with him. Can they afford to sell someone 
like him who is a absolutely pivotal influence. Funny, I was looking on social media last night for, for prep and the rumours about Declan Rice, Chelsea, as you mentioned, Mike, absolutely. And then also Manchester United as well. They'd love to get him in at, at Manchester United. I think, you know, you feel, he's 22 years old and look at the leadership qualities that he brings on the pitch as well as off the pitch. I've spoken to him once, I've had to interview him and he's such a delight to talk to, such a, a forensic brain going on there, a proper footballing brain within Declan Rice. And, and for me, you can see that when those players are on the pitch, he is telling them we play as a team. There is no more individual play. Everybody works as a collective. And I think that's been the big tick for West Ham because before you've had individual players who've been a bit too selfish, wanting to do their own thing when it comes to West Ham. That has gone now. And woe betide you if you try and step out of line. As we saw with Jesse Lingard when he wanted to take that penalty and Declan Rice told him in no uncertain terms, no. And then afterwards, there was a little video of them having a bit of a makeup afterwards because it's all fun. But at the same time, there's the serious business of winning games he's a I think West Ham would struggle without him because he's such a brick wall and that partnership that he has with Thomas Salchek as well they're underrated as a midfield duo for me I hope he doesn't I hope he doesn't leave West Ham because he's the linchpin for them and as I said he's still young he's 22 he hasn't even peaked yet I think he could do with another few years at West Ham and then look to move on now because of West Ham you know we have we've got a natural link to a club which is dear to both your hearts, Arsenal. Nice quiet afternoon for you, really, yesterday, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, you can always trust Arsenal to bring the drama. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to make of them at the moment, to be honest, Jordan. I see in Arteta a putative manager of, of real quality, yet for the first 35 minutes yesterday, they were appalling with a capital A. How do you rationalise all that? No, you don't. Don't try and do it, Mike, with Arsenal. You'll just end up getting greyer and greyer and greyer. It's not good for the health. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I've been, there's been no bigger defender of Mikel Arteta on this planet than, than, than me. I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a there's a really intelligent, progressive and hardline manager that we that we currently have. And I'm, I'm defending him when, when we were 15th. I, I stuck with him and I will stick with him still. But you're right. That th that first half an hour for me was unacceptable. It was unacceptable as an Arsenal manager. And people talk about the great comeback and this word character and character. No, it wasn't. It's very easy to play when you're 3-0 down. It's very easy to play when you're 3-0 down. So I don't give them praise for character. They just threw everything at it and West Ham couldn't deal with the attack. That's, that's all it was. I think Arsenal are in a weird position now and there's a lot of pressure on this summer for Arsenal. We say that probably every year, but this summer is a huge summer for Arsenal because the, the, the league season for me is done, whether they finish 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 12th, it doesn't really matter to me. He's done some good work in getting some of the players out of the club that needed to be removed from the football club, granted. But this summer, he has to now replace them with the guys that he wants. He will be judged, I think, very early on and I'm predicating this by the fact that he, he may not win the Europa League. Let's say he doesn't win the Europa League. The first 10 games of next season, I think, are going to be huge for him. He has to start the season really well. Because if Arsenal finish this year 8th, 9th, 10th and no trophies, the fan base are going to be really, really baying for blood if we don't start the season well. He's on borrowed time because he won the FA Cup last season for me. I believe in him, but even I, as his biggest supporter, will be onto, his, onto him really hardcore to maybe leave if he doesn't start the season well. And that's, that, for me, again, is predicated on bringing in two or three key players this summer. So it's been a weird, horrible year for Arsenal, but I think I'm going to give him the summer to get in his players, but that for me will be the last chance for to, for him to prove to me as an Arsenal supporter that he can take Arsenal back to where we need to be. Mm. In that context, Anne-Marie, how vital is it that they summon the ambition and, yeah. let's be honest, the money to sign Odegaard from Real Madrid? Sign him tomorrow. Do what you have to do. Break the bank if, if you need to, because we need him on the evidence of watching yesterday's performance. Goodness me. And I have to remind myself he's only on there on loan. But goodness, we Arsenal could do with signing him permanently because he's got such an eye for a pass and his feet are so quick. He's able to get out of situations. He's able to take charge. I mean, there was an interview that Emile Smith wrote over the weekend I think it was in the Daily Mail talking about was he what he was asked the question was he worried about Martin Odegaard coming into Arsenal because obviously they they can kind of play the same position 
And he said he was a little bit, but he was used to that. But what he likes is that they play, they can play together. And I think that's really important for Arsenal because I think those two can be absolutely dangerous in the midfield. It's just a case of does Arsenal have the money in the bank? Do they need to let go some more players from those fringe players to allow Martin Odegaard, who also he may decide he wants to go back to Real Madrid. Let's, you know, let's not forget about what the players' wants and wishes are as well. He might want to try and fight for his place back in Real Madrid. I hope he, he chooses to stay because for me, he's hit the ground running. And also I can see that he, he's the only one yesterday within that first 35 minutes who wanted to play for the shirt. The others just disappeared off and switched off in that first 35 minutes. But he got it. He understood it. He understood his role and tried to, as I said, create situations. And we need that right now for Arsenal. Can I just briefly, quick, briefly, sorry, Mike, disagree mm. with Anne-Marie there a little bit. And I'm really worried about this Odegaard loving from the Arsenal fan base. Whilst I understand why we want why we, we want him to stay, and I do too, Arsenal are never going to be competitive again until they build a defence. The focus this summer for me is not Odegaard. If we can keep him, great. But the focus, if we have, as Anne-Marie mentions, any money, we have to spend that money on a right back or a centre back if Saliba's not the guy. I really don't, we, we couldn't get distracted by Odegaard and how well he's doing and the creativity that he brings. And we love an attacker at Arsenal, don't get me wrong. But in terms of us being competitive again, not just flashes of goal of the months here and there, I'm talking competitive over 38 games, we have to focus on the defence. So if it's, a, if it's a toss up between a right back or Odegaard, for me, it's a right back. That sounds very boring and I'm a very boring kind of person. <laughs> but I understand if we're going to get back to being top four, top six even, we need a proper defence. And that for me should be the priority before spending any money on Odegaard. Okay, let's uh, nip down the road then, shall we? Tottenham. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Um, I know this is a you know a tap in from from eight inches for both of you, but let's let's look at where they are at the moment. You know, there was a I suppose what Jose Mourinho's supporters would say was a statement win at Villa Park last evening. Jose being Jose couldn't really resist dumping another couple of gallons of petrol on the fire by talking about selfish players and agents who've got a relationship with the press. When we look at Tottenham, have you got any confidence that stability will ever emerge while you've got that type of culture, which is by its nature divisive, in place? Amory, I'll give you the first go. I'm going to be obviously professional about this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got mixed feelings about Tottenham and, and Jose, not for the obvious ones, of course. I've got mixed feelings because I kind of think, I, on the one hand, I think Jose was brought in because he's a serial winner. He's won, thing at te- he's won trophies at teams that he has been at. He got Tottenham out of trouble last season. They were a 14th. He got them back into the Europa League. So I will give him a tick for that. However, there is still the issue about what is going on in the dressing room and there is still the issues about what's happening on the training pitch. Obviously, I'm not there. I can't see what's going on, but there's there's just a vibe. You just get a sense there's a vibe going on for them. And for a, a team that is talented as Tottenham, it should not be this hard. You've got the likes of Kane, Son, Hoiberg, Regulion, and Dombele. I mean, he's a what's going on with him? Lucas, Lacelso, I know he's been injured as well, but when you've got a team like that and and Jose is struggling to get a tune out of them, where is the issue? Is it him and his coaching message or is it the team itself? Where's the desire? Where is the attitude? Where is the effort? When Son went off in that Arsenal game, it changed for them. And I know there's a lot of focus on Harry Kane, but I think we should also focus on Son, who is yet to sign his contract, by the way. They miss him when he is not there. And I think the style of Jose, the way that he plays, the way he sets up, has become very predictable and defensive errors have crept in and teams have worked them out. That, I'm sorry to say, sits at Jose's door. Yeah, but in his favour, Tottenham are three points off the top four. They've got nine games to actually get into that top four. And so there will be an absolute mountain of humble pie eaten by me in particular, probably. But, you know, all, all of us have had a pop, haven't we? Let's be honest. Jordan, when you look at that team, and let's let's look at the power of personality, I'll put it like that. Harry Kane, is the halo slipping? 
<laughs> Great question. I'm assuming you're referring to his on the field noughties at times that kind of go under the radar. Well, and also the in inverted commas cute penalty he won against Villa. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe it, maybe it is, but I must say I'm I'm not mad at that. I I don't I I'm not I'm not particularly angry at that. I mean that that maybe that maybe I'm the problem here then, but it doesn't annoy me that that, that sort of. I'm a believer in if you if you can get a penalty and get away with it, then I'm fine with that. But equally, if you get caught, you should be punished to the to the harshest degree. So it's a gamble you take, and I'm I'm very much of the if you can get away with it and you're cute enough to do it, then I'm not I'm I'm not going to say don't do it. But if it's spotted, I think you should be you should be given the the, the harshest penalty possible. Uh, I think one of my losers this season was going to be Daniel Levy. And the reason why I'm going to go with Daniel Levy is because he bet the house on Jose Mourinho this season. And it's 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 seemingly, and you're right, this time next month, we could be we could be eating, uh, I could be joining you with a spoon of humble pie myself, Mike. But it, it, it could backfire quite badly. They sacked Maurizio Pochettino, which at the time I thought was harsh. But even if we agreed that it seemed to run its course, he'd, you know, he'd squeezed the flannel and got as much water out of it as he possibly could. And it was time for him to go. Was Jose the guy to bring in? Now, I at the time was like, no, but I understood the logic. He's a winner. He's guaranteed to win trophies, which again, I don't always agree, I don't always agree with. But I think if it, if it does go badly wrong this season, they don't finish top four and don't win a trophy, where does Levy go from here? Because the contract that Jose is on is a very big contract. I think if they sack him, he's used to get like 34 million, something ridiculous like that. So he won't be sacking him very, very lightly. So I think he's, in a, he's boxed himself into a very, very difficult corner here. And I think for the Spurs supporters, I mean, many of them are saying now that even if he wins the League Cup this season, Jose Mourinho, they still want him out. Even that won't save him now. So Spurs are in a really, really weird place. And going back to Harry Kane... I'm not one of these people that thinks that he will leave Spurs. I think he'll stay there forever. I think I, I think he's maybe missed the boat of, of, of moving to a bigger club. So I, I think he wants to stay there. I don't see who pays 150 million plus for Harry Kane. I think one of the best strikers in the world, for sure. I'm just not convinced that that, that that he will be leaving Spurs anytime soon. And that'll be a shame, I think, for Harry Kane, because I think he's a striker that should be in the Champions League. But I think this summer, like Arsenal, is a big year for Spurs because whether they can keep Son, and Amory mentioned that his contract hasn't been signed yet, or whether he moves on, I think there are some big questions for Levy to be answering this this summer that could determine the next couple of years for where the direction that Spurs go in. And at the heart of it, I think, are Jose Mourinho. Yeah, so much is in flux, isn't it, at the moment? You know, when you think about it, let's look at Liverpool, Amory. You know, they certainly don't deserve to be stigmatised as losers. You know, there's some murmurs that Wijnaldum's going to go to Barcelona. There will be change because change is constant in football. But what do you think they need to do over the next sort of six, eight weeks to actually rescue this season? What? would success for Liverpool in this season look like when we all pack up in May the 23rd or whenever it is? Securing top four status if they still can. I still can't get my head around the fact that Liverpool potentially could not play Champions League next season. That's mind-boggling. A team of that talent, of that squad, of that of Jurgen Klopp at the helm. You know, I know it took a lot of years for them to get back into the Champions League, but the, to think they're not going to be a part, potentially not be a part of it, Next season, it's just, it's mind-blowing, really. They've got a lot of work to do and it's going to take a big push to secure that status, I think. And they will rely also on teams dropping points as we head into the last, what, eight, nine games of the season. It's now the business end now. I do wonder now, they also, in terms of their defence, have they now managed to settle on a partnership because they've had so many partnerships over the last few weeks or so, you know, with, is it Quebec and Phillips? They've managed to keep a couple of clean sheets in that respect. You know, you could point to the injuries, you could point to the, the bizarre drop of form of the front three, but I'm sorry to say this, Liverpool fans, but the team has made a mess of it this season. They have made a mess of it. And I think they've dealt with it in some situations poorly. It would be remiss of me not not to say that, I know, you know, people say that's a bit harsh calling them bad champions. Yes, it's incredibly hard to to defend a title. You know, City is one of the rare teams that have managed to do it. United did it back in the day. Liverpool did it back in the day. But we are where we are. 
with Liverpool. It's just that nobody has a div- div- divine right to be a, to be champions. Yeah, it's not an automatic thing. You have to work hard at it, get the points and push your way back up to the table. Yes, some of it's down to luck. They have been struck by injuries. COVID hasn't helped them. But as we've discussed, like with Leicester, you still get on with it and you still get the points on on the pitch. I don't like saying this about Liverpool because I was excited for them to put in a decent title defence. I wanted them. I thought they were the team that were going to push City all the way. And it hasn't happened this season. Take this season as a loss, regroup, get ready next for next season. Mm. Do you agree with that, Jordan? I do, I do. Um, I, I think, I agree that I think success for Liverpool now is, is securing top four. They're in the Champions League. If they can win that, they'll obviously be, be, be phenomenal. But in some ways, I think if they win the Champions League but finish seventh, that would be a that would be a weird one for me because the Champions League obviously is the, is the Champions League, but I just can't get my head around a bit like a Marie, a, a team that wins the league, finishing so low down the table. It's one thing if you don't retain the title, to finish so low, I think is is almost unacceptable. I can foresee some clear outs at, at this this summer, and I actually think there'll be some high profile outgoings this summer in Liverpool. Um, I can't. Don't want to commit to who I think they will be. I've got a suspicion who I think they may be, but don't be surprised if you see a couple of quite high-profile Liverpool players being moved on. I think Klopp needs to re- re-energise that squad, and I think it may start with a couple of their bigger players. Like Salah? Moving on. Like Salah? I think, I, th- I think it could be Salah. I think if they can find a buyer for Salah, I would not be surprised if this start with the start of the, the new season, Salah's not in that squad. I, I think if they can find someone to pay the 100 mil, the 80 mil, that Liverpool, I think, would take. I think they would move him on. I think they would move him on. So, and I think that kind of a, that kind of a jerk of the system is maybe is maybe what's needed. They've had three hard years of just kind of grinding, and they've, they've won the two big ones. I think they maybe need that real that real sharp jerk to kind of get them into life again next season. And the selling of Salah could 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 be that. Okay, let's look at losers. Perhaps the biggest losers of all. Okay, you can say Sheffield United, they're going down, unlikely to return anytime soon. West Brom, championship team, possibly a championship club, returning to the championship, well, fine. What about Newcastle? To me, and I'll be fascinated if you you agree with me, they, to me, are the biggest losers of all. That nature of that defeat to Brighton was completely and utterly damning. What do you think? When you get the legend of Alan Shearer tweeting the word abysmal on social media, just that one word, I think that pretty much says it all. You know, I'm going to stick up for Newcastle fans here. You know, they've been called demanding. They've been called expectant. Again, the divine right that they should get anything and everything when it comes to the Premier League. What fans want, what all fans want at the end of the day is a 100% performance. Go out, compete, put effort into the game plan and play for the shirt. And you haven't seen that for some time with Newcastle. At the beginning of the season, you did. And I think having Callum Wilson as part of that, I know he's been injured. He helped to re-energise that team. And I know COVID has played a massive part in that. The loss of Lascelles, the loss of Sam Maximan has hurt that club quite deeply. It's just they're not getting the wins. And I feel with Newcastle every season for the fans, it's a push and pull, a push and pull. They never get the chance to actually sit and enjoy a season. And I think every fan should get that, that chance where they can just actually relax and enjoy watching their team win games. And for the last few seasons, Newcastle hasn't been, have hasn't had that opportunity for me. So yeah, I do feel like, you know, when you hear certain pundits going, why are they being so demanding? It's because they want their team to perform. And that's every rights fan, every right of every fan to have that. I don't know Steve Bruce, so I'm not going to even, you know, talk about him in that respect because I don't know who he is as a man and what he delivers on the training pitch. I just think for me, the issues with Mike Ashley, the selling of the club, sometimes the players are just not putting in a shift they're getting outclassed. You see what happens with Leeds, with their attacking style of football. And I'm not a massive loving of Leeds, Jordan. And also with West Ham as good, well. Good, good. And West Ham as well. The, the trials and tribulations that club has gone through to get to where they are now. That's what I want for, for Newcastle. They deserve that after all the everything they've had to go through over the last few years or so. I think they deserve that. Mm. Interesting over the weekend to see Rafa Benitez 
talking fondly about Newcastle. Don't know what we read into that. The issue is always at that football club, or has been recently, Jordan, Mike Ashley. He seems to be sticking with Steve Bruce, but he does also seem to be increasingly desperate to get out of that club. Mike Ashley is um, a weird one because he does seem to want to get rid of the club or get move on from the club, but he wants to do it on his terms at his price, which is his right. You know, if, if, if something belongs to you, you have the, you have the right to d- demand what you want for your product. He's a businessman. And despite wanting to leave and, d- and depart from Newcastle, he wants his money and he wants what he thinks is right. And again, I, th- I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, and this is independent of the Newcastle fans. I, I look at teams in the Premier League and think to myself, who contributes to the Premier League? So as a neutral, who who do I think, okay, they're not my team, but they contribute something. And the reason why I wouldn't mind seeing Newcastle go down is because I just don't think they contribute anything to the Premier League, Mike. I don't, they don't bring through particularly great young talent. They don't make great, you know, snazzy signings. They don't play a brand of football that makes me think as a neutral. Okay, Newcastle on this weekend, I'll watch them. They just seem to be a kind of soap opera that even the fans seem to, maybe because they're not in the ground at the moment, even the fans seem to just be apathetic now. They don't seem to be as, you know, as 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 as, as vocal as, as they were. You listen to phone-ins. They just seem to be just accepting of the fact that until this man moves on, they're never going to get anything that's going to be of anything interesting to cheer about. As a slight segue into something else as a loser this year, just briefly, I think officiating and VAR this year, I think has really killed football to some degree, in my opinion, uh, uh, Mike. I think the, the, the changing of the rules is really making the watching of football this season hard to watch and discussion of what's a handball, what's a foul, all this sort of stuff. Is it offside, the lines? It's hard to have a discussion on that when the rules change. What's the parameters? How, what's the point in discussing it if, we, if no one knows what the actual truth is? And that for me makes not only watching football, but discussing football and decisions a very difficult watch. I think this year, more than any, officiating slash VAR, I think has been a massive loser in football. And I, and I do think that officiating, I don't buy into the things, this the rhetoric that refs are getting 10 times worse. I think there's more scrutiny, there's more cameras, there's more talk. So it seems like it's getting worse. But I think VAR has exacerbated the poor officiating that I think we always, at some level, had. Yeah, that's a familiar issue, a tiresomely familiar issue. Another issue that, we have to keep returning to is summed up really by the uh, Slavia Prague racism case. There was a notable show of solidarity before the old firm game, Celtic captain Scott Brown seeking out Glenn Kamara, which struck me as being significant. But we're again left asking the question, I'd like your, your thoughts, please. What can should, and most importantly, will be done about this. Amory. Can, should, will. Oh, man, alive. It's never-ending, isn't it, really? Uh, I've, I've run out of ideas. What can be done, what should be done, what will be done. OK, let's start with what will be done. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I laugh at it because it's so ridiculous that I'm saying it. It's... What I want to be done is a swift investigation as to what exactly happened between the Slavia Prague player and Glenn Kamara. And I think what needs to be done is UEFA, when it comes to Europa League and Champions League matches, that they have an officer on site for every match. So if there's any incidences, they can take the statements, get the video and do a swift investigation as quickly as possible. Because now we haven't heard really heard anything. We've just heard that UEFA are just holding an investigation. What's going on with that? Have you taken the statements? Have you spoken to the police? And have you done X, Y, and Z? It just it's gone a little bit quiet for me. What should be done? I, a part of me would would love to see Slavia Prague thrown out of the competition, but I am all about due process. Unfortunately, I am about facts and investigation and putting emotion to the side. And until that happens. You've got just, you know, the competition, unfortunately, needs to keep going. As much as I would love Slavia Prague to be told they can't take part in the next round and then put Rangers in and have Arsenal play Rangers, that would be great. But it's not going to happen. And that's the reality of it. What can be done? The taking of the knee. 
I thought it was really interesting, although not taking the knee, I thought it was really interesting in the old firm derby. And of course, all social media was talking about good. It's really good they're not taking the knee. Should have been stopped a long time ago. Guys and girls, you're missing the point of why the knee was taken in the first place. And it was quite powerful seeing everybody standing on the touchline around the centre circle as well. But it still doesn't mean the problem has gone away. Regardless if you take a knee or not, the problem is still there. And it feels like it's never ending at the moment. And for me, UEFA really need to step up. And I say that I'm tired of the wrapping of the knuckles of silly fines. I'm tired of the weak statements. I'm tired of hearing, yeah, we're going to look into it and things go really, really quiet. You know, look what happened in, against Ish, that game in the champion. Was it the Champions League against uh, back, Backshear? Bashir? Mm. I mean, I know now we only heard a few weeks ago that the I think the, the fourth official, there's been some sort of sanction against him. Now, how long did that take to get to that point? It's too long. It's far too long for me. Can, should, will. It's There's such difficult questions to answer for me because whatever I say, it, just, it won't happen, Mike. It just won't happen. Yeah. I have no faith. Isn't that the central point, Jordan? You know, I know you've called for maybe even Arsenal to make the sacrifice of boycotting their their quarterfinal, which, you know, with great respect, is probably not realistic. But does anyone have faith in UEFA? It seems to me they're more interested in working as partners, financial partners with a big club, so they get more money from a revamped Champions League. The answer to the question is no. Very few people have have faith in UEFA. I think we have to separate the incident that happened between Codella and Kamara on, on Thursday with the general problem we had in racism because in regards to that incident, what I fear is going to happen is that they will get off on the basis of, um, you know, Amory mentions the word kind of facts. If the guy covers his mouth it's hard to prove what he said. And, and so I, I that'll be thrown out. I mean, I think we all know what was said. I believe Kamara, but it, it, it's not about what I believe. And it's, again, to Anne-Marie, it's not about feelings here and emotions. It's about facts. Can you prove it? It's, it's not about what you, what you know. It's about what you can prove. So I think that'll be thrown out. The wider problem of of the lack of credibility the UEFA have on on issues of race is my bigger thing, and as you mentioned, I I am a, I'm, I mean I'm really disagree on this. I am a believer that Arsenal should should refuse to play in the competition, and it's for this reason. And I, I agree with you; it, it won't happen. So I want to make that very clear. I'm aware it won't happen, but the reason why I think it should happen is because of this reason. People say they shouldn't. Arsenal shouldn't have to walk out of the competition. Why should it be on Arsenal? Why should it be on Arsenal? It shouldn't have to be on Arsenal. But if we all agree that we have no faith in UEFA handling issues of race properly, I think we all agree that UEFA's issue handling of these issues is poor. Then waiting for UEFA to do the correct thing is is a bit of an oxymoron because on one side we're saying we know UEFA ain't going to do anything, but yeah, we're also saying we're waiting for them to fix up. So at what point does somebody step up and take the lead on this? And if it's not Arsenal, if it's not Man United, if it's not an English team, who is it going to be? Are we just waiting for UEFA to think, hmm, actually we should fix up on this sort of thing? So I would like as an Arsenal fan, my club, to be the team that puts their head above the parapet and says, enough is enough. If we don't do it, who is? And I would like to then believe, in my ideal world, that if Arsenal then pull out, Man United then pull out, Roma then pull out, Granada then pull out, and there's no Europa League anymore. Again, I accept that that will not happen. But until one of those teams or players does decide to be, I'd say, brave and step up and risk losing commercial activities, risk losing, risk being, re- receiving a fine, nothing is going to change. This idea that we've got to wait for the authorities to govern us and protect us is a myth. It's not going to happen. And in the meantime, black people, black players, their mental health, their safety is being compromised. So we can sit here all day and say, it's not on Arsenal, it's not on Man United, it's not on the players. But if someone doesn't step up and take control of this, we're going to have this conversation again, Mike, you know we will, in six weeks and six months' time. So whilst I'm very radical and out there with it, I accept that. Unless we deal with this with radical solutions, we're never going to get change. Yeah, well, it is too easy for for those in positions of influence to say all the right things and do precisely nothing. But to your point, Jordan, I found it encouraging when an owner of the stature of Roman Abramovich used that very rare interview to speak in these terms. And there's a there's a quote which I'll which I'll end this 
podcast with. He said, football is part of society and society is part of football. Racism, anti-Semitism, this is all the same type of evil and should have no place in our world in this day and age. Every time I get sent examples of racist abuse that our players face, I'm shocked. It's disgraceful that this is the reality, not just for our players, but for anyone targeted by this sort of abuse. If we as a club can make a difference in this area in fighting anti-Semitism, racism and promoting tolerance, I'm determined to stand behind it and contribute in whatever way I can. Well said, sir. Well said. In the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Jordan and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.